This episode of TNTV is dedicated to Patty Harridge. Hi, we're TNTV, a podcast for TV addicts. I'm Price. And I'm Elizabeth. Today we're discussing Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and the differences between the book and the show. So before we start, we wanted to add a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. As you know, we're going to be discussing The Handmaid's Tale, both the novel by Margaret Atwood and the TV show created by Hulu last year, uh, which deals with some really heavy and traumatic topics. So if at any point you need to stop the episode or skip a certain part, we totally understand and support you. Absolutely. We both know that mental health breaks are super important. Price and I had to take our own mental health breaks when we were planning and recording these next three episodes. So we just want to make sure that everyone is okay and happy and good. On our website, we're going to also be sharing some specific timestamps of each topic so that you can easily skip part of the episode if you need to. And we'll also link some puppy videos as a palate cleanser. Oh my god, yes. Puppies are the best. Hi, Elizabeth! Hi, Price. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm kind of sleepy today. It got cold in Austin um, when it was like 95 degrees outside yesterday. So now it's like 60 and I don't know what to do with myself. Oh, Texas, your crazy weather mood swings. I do not miss you at all. That's pretty much all of April and all of March. That's exactly what it does. It's like, oh, I'm cold. Oh, I'm hot. Oh, I'm cold. It's like menopause. (laughs) Yeah. Seattle is kind of the same way in the spring months, March and April, but the temperature stays about the same. It's not so drastic as it is in Texas. I don't know what's happening. Must be global warming. Yeah, exactly. What tea are you drinking? I am drinking Stash's Double Spice Chai Black Tea. Ooh, that sounds really good. It's very good. I had a problem with chai tea that we all know about, and um, this is actually really good. I threw some honey in it, and because, once again, I don't have milk, and it's delicious. So, good job, Stash. What tea are you drinking? Uh, I'm also drinking a black tea, a mango black tea, mango black tea from Choice, and that's very good. I like it. That sounds good. I love me some mangoes. Yeah. So this is our first episode of The Handmaid's Tale. Oh my god. I'm so excited and also so not excited to be doing this. (laughs) Yeah. I'm very excited and then I feel I kind of feel bad for being so excited, if that makes sense. No, no, I think it's good to be excited. I'm just like a little worried about myself on how much we're going to be deep diving into The Handmaid's Tale. Like, I'm not going to have a happy view of the world for a bit. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a big contrast from the bold <laughs> type, which, <laughs> I mean, we coined the term, you know, bubblegum pink, and that is not The Handmaid's Tale at all. Yeah, that doesn't really exist in The Handmaid's Tale, but we thought this was a good um, next step to do in our podcast, and uh, I think it's going to be really good. Yeah, I'm very excited and very, like, touched is the right word that we're doing this, because this book and the show just mean a whole lot to me. So we dedicated this episode um, to my grandmother, Patty Harridge, who passed away almost three years ago now. This was one of her favorite books. And The Handmaid's Tale has kind of been passed down through the women in my family. My grandmother first read it and was very, very moved by it and recommended it to my mom and my aunt, who were both who both read it and were moved by it. And then about four years ago, I was in a bookstore with my mom and my sister. My mom found The Handmaid's Tale on the shelf and said, oh, my gosh, wow, I haven't read this since I was about your age here. I'm going to buy it and loan it to you and you should read this because it will kind of change. It's one of those books where it makes you rethink things. And so, yeah, (laughs) my grandmother was an amazing person and I, it breaks my heart that um, the Hulu show premiered after she passed away because I never had the chance to really talk to her about this. But um 
Yeah. So yeah, it's meant a lot to me and the women in my family. My aunt wrote a 10 page paper about Margaret Atwood in The Handmaid's Tale when she was in 10th grade. That's amazing. I know. She like still like she dug it up for me and sent it to me. Yeah, we might have to share that if she's cool with that. (laughs) I'll ask her. Yeah, no, I mean, she's a brilliant person. And just like reading through it, I'm like, okay, yeah. So she's always been brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's Um, really cool. Yeah, yeah. No, I talked to like, you know, a lot of uh, people in my family to see if they remember like having a conversation with my grandmother about The Handmaid's Tale because I never got the chance to. And unfortunately, everyone's memory is pretty shit. So they don't, they don't remember like a specific conversation, but they just remember that she was very moved and affected by this book. And my mom said that whenever she first read it, she just remember feeling like almost scared and just kind of blown away that women can have their lives controlled and their choices revoked from them. And um, yeah, so I wanted to dedicate this episode to my grandmother, Patty Harridge. I'm I'm so touched that you shared that with me because I really wanted to do this. And then you mentioned that. And now I'm just like, even more thrilled to be doing this with you. So I'm very glad that we get to talk about it because it really does have such a important message to women and and to society about what can go wrong and about like all of this dystopian crap um that we need to not have happen because that would really suck (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and just that it's the time when it were uh when it was released in 1985, shocked people and people thought that it could never happen. And the fact that it's still timely now uh, is a little worrisome, to put it mildly. Yeah. And I mean, literature is so powerful in the ways that it can do that. And like specifically, Margaret Atwood's work is so powerful because she just writes about these things that are not right, but they seem so it's not that far from our current timeline, which is terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Terrifying, I think, is like the best adjective for the novel and then the TV show. Absolutely. Absolutely. In this episode, we wanted to kind of do a basis of the book and the novel and then do a broad overview of some of the differences between the book and the show. And then the next two episodes, we'll be diving more into the show itself. And we're going to focus a lot on the broad aspects. We're going to bring up some things that we're going to dive in further in the next two episodes. But this episode is kind of just an overview of some of the key things that we noticed that we liked. Um, And a lot of the differences between the book and the show. Yeah. So did you want to kick us off and kind of tell us a little bit about Margaret Atwood herself? Yeah. Oh my gosh. We cannot talk about The Handmaid's Tale without devoting some time to Margaret Atwood because she is the epitome of a badass. Yeah. Yeah. One of the first Call Your Girlfriends I actually listened to and what got me into the idea that we could do a podcast was Margaret Atwood did an interview on Call Your Girlfriend where they talked about The Handmaid's Tale and her work and all this stuff. And she is just like the coolest person. She doesn't give a shit about what other people think. She has this really cool idea about that none of the things that she writes about are very out of the way. None of these things are a huge leap from A to B, but she writes in such a way that we see it as as terrible and horrible and like the darkest of darks, but it's actually really, really close to our current life. And I, I think that that's such a cool thing to be able to do and I I really look up to her because she just she writes whatever she wants and she doesn't care about if it's gonna sit well with people or not yeah no that's so true one of the things I found really interesting is that she doesn't really label The Handmaid's Tale and other novels that she's written as science fiction per se but as speculative fiction as in like this could potentially happen and she like has made a point in a lot of interviews about the handmaid's tale that everything she wrote that happened to people in the gilead society has happened at some point in human history yeah yeah when i was looking her up um i found out that she just went through tons and tons of newspapers for research and she found all of these articles about things that had happened like um for example she heard of in Romania they banned abortions completely and they would punish women who actually had an abortion Um, we've also heard of that happening today where people propose 
Maybe not realistically, but they're actually proposing jail time for women who have an abortion, and that's insane. This is what really struck me, is that she found an article about this community who um, is in western Pennsylvania, and they have traditional family values where it's anti-abortion, and they don't allow women to have an email or bank accounts or even leave the household without their husband's permission. And they call their wives handmaids. Literally, that's from real life. She did not make that up. And that's ridiculous. Uh, it's scary and ridiculous, and I cannot believe that that's real life. I want to make, like, a screeching sound right now because... <laughs> ah, what? Yeah, I... That was the part of the book when I found out that they took away their, their jobs and their bank accounts that I was just... Are you kidding me? Like... I would so lose my shit. And it's awful. Like, oh my god. That is insane. I knew that everything that had happened to people in The Handmaid's Tale had happened some point in, like, human history, but I hadn't looked up, like, specific examples like you had. So I'm thinking, like, a thousand years ago this stuff was happening. Back in, like, Roman times or whatever when women couldn't own property, but not, like, Pennsylvania, you said? That's... Ah, yeah. And I mean, women just earn the right to drive by themselves in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And and leave the house. And it's it's a crazy world, man. It is a crazy world. And I'm I'm again, I'm glad we're having this conversation, but I'm also really not glad we're having this conversation. I feel you. Um, Margaret Atwood also has some unbelievable quotes. Oh my god, she is so cool. Speaking of which, we're going to link the Call Your Girlfriend interview because it's very good. You gotta hear this woman speak. She's so cool. There's also a New Yorker article that they link on their website that I read, and it's a novel, but it's really, really good. It just shows like how cool she is. Uh, so make it through that if you can. Yeah, yeah. No, the Call Your Girlfriend episode uh, where they interview Margaret Atwood is definitely one of my favorite Call Your Girlfriend episodes, which is saying something because I love that podcast very much. <laughs> um, my my favorite quote from Margaret Atwood from that interview is, "There's no point in trolling the sex robots." And like even taking completely out of context, that's so perfect. <laughs> It is so perfect and even better taken out of context. I think so. But yeah, go listen to the interview and hear why she said that. There are also some famous quotes from her that I really enjoyed. I found this Mental Floss article about 15 powerful quotes from her and I picked out two. I tried to pick out one, but I couldn't. Again, this woman is a badass. And this is the one that I've heard most often is, why do men feel threatened by women? I asked a male friend of mine, they're afraid women will laugh at them he said. And then I asked some women students in a poetry seminar I was giving, why do women feel threatened by men? And they replied, they're afraid of being killed. Uh, It's so true. It's so true. Yeah. And it's so poignant to the discussion that society is having today. And it's so feminist and awesome. My second one that I really like, which I think ties really well with The Handmaid's Tale, is when I was young, I believed that nonfiction meant true, but you read a history written in, say, 1920, and a history of the same events written in 1995, and they're very different. There may not be one truth, there may be several truths, but saying that is not to say that reality doesn't exist. Ooh. Oh my gosh. She's so smart. I love that. I know. She's amazing. And she's written so many books. And I I need to like start getting through them because I've only read The Handmaid's Tale of hers. Me too. Me too. She also has a book. It's a nonfiction about a murder. And it was made into a show by Netflix called Elias Grace. So I definitely need to check that out. Oh my gosh. No, I've heard of that. But I didn't know that she was associated with that. (laughs) Right? What a fucking badass, dude. Yeah, such a badass. And she's won so many awards over like her whole life. And it's just, she's incredible. Yeah, she's really cool. So yeah, go check her out. Yeah, so this episode, like we mentioned, it's going to touch on a lot of the differences between the show and the book. Price and I are both avid readers and hate adaptations of a lot of things. I definitely hate a lot of adaptations of a lot of things. Me too. But this, I think, is my favorite adaptation of a book, like, 
ever. I'm super impressed with the show. I was very happy with a lot of the dialogue they kept in and a lot of the scenes. And so that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Yes. Before we dive in, we kind of just wanted to do a brief overview of The Handmaid's Tale. It was originally published in 1985 by Margaret Atwood, and it won the Governor General's Award and the first Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1987. And it was also nominated for the 1986 Nebula Award, the 1986 Booker Prize, and the 1987 Prometheus Award. It's set in the not-so-distant future, where a totalitarian Christian organization called the Sons of Jacob has overthrown the United States. And so the novel follows this uh, handmaid called Offred. Handmaids in the book are women who were captured and are used to have babies for the leaders of this new regime. Yeah. So what happens is that there was some kind of nuclear fallout or something happened to make it where there's fertility problems, like Price said. And so they need to solve their fertility problems somehow, and they skew it religiously, and it's just gross. Yeah, yeah. I think most of everyone kind of knows what it's about. Just in case you're jumping in and you haven't seen it, you're going to get a lot of spoilers, but that's what it's about. (laughs) Yeah, there are different caste systems of women, all required to uh, dress and act a certain way, depending on their station. So there's a lot of just like imagery evoked in the novel. The handmaids all wear red and they have these wings that cover their faces so they can only look forward. It's just a lot of religious crap. Um... Religiously skewed crap. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, yeah. It's okay. We're just religiously screwed crap. I'm going to have a whole rant about that later. (laughs) Yeah, so the book follows a handmaid, Offred, um, when she's assigned to a leader of this new regime called the Commander. In the show, they reveal that her real name is June. Part of handmaids, their original names are taken away from them, and they're named of the name of the um, commander that they're servicing. Yeah, so, for example, the commander that June is under is Fred, so she's off Fred. Someone else is under a Warren, so she's off Warren. It's gross. Uh, They take away their names, they take away their faces, they take away literally everything these women have, and they just use them as uh, vessels to hold their children, and it's gross. And I'm going to say that word a lot because it's really gross. Yeah. So, okay. So now that got the synopsis over, we want to dive into the differences. Yeah. So we just wanted to talk about some of the differences between the book and the show. We really, really like this adaptation, but there are a few key differences that we wanted to point out because a lot of them are really good and a lot of them are really cool. There are a few things that we didn't necessarily like, but most of them are really, really cool and really well done. First of all, I guess we wanted to talk about the scene that struck both of us as just being really, really well adapted, which is the first time that we see June in Jezebel's. There's kind of this whorehouse, kind of, that she goes to, and it's exactly what I pictured. It's kind of like Pat O'Brien's in Louisiana. It's kind of in a courtyard. It's a little bit dirty. It's a little bit raunchy. It's, it's kind of very weird in this uh, world of religious rules and everything is dictated, but Jezebel's is just really good and it's exactly what I imagined. I think it's the best adapted scene in the series. I totally agree. That scene, whenever she does enter Jezebel's and with the song uh, White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane, that song is so perfect for the scene and I like get chills every time I watch it. Yeah, no, it's a really good scene. Yeah, and I just think that that scene is just an example of how the show adapted it from this book and how well done it was. Another thing that I really noticed was that they kept a lot of the dialogue perfect in the show. They took stuff word for word from the book and used it, which is something that I've only seen in Shakespeare adaptations, is when they take the dialogue word for word. And I thought that that was really cool and such a great way to keep it very true to Margaret Atwood's book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a couple of like dialogue differences, which highlights some differences in the characterization, but 
I'm okay with that. The changes that they did make, for the most part, I'm like, I'm okay with those. Yeah, because I think that it it showed, it kind of fleshed out the characters that Margaret Atwood introduced. It kind of fleshed them out and made them more human, which was really cool. Yeah, I mean, the show definitely feels like Gilead. You're watching the show and it feels like you're in Gilead, which is amazing and such a testament to how great it is. Yeah, they did a really good job. So now we're going to go into some of the specifics about each character. So what differences did we notice with June? So her character is different between the book and the show. I mean, right off the bat, in the show, they reveal that her name is June. In the book, they don't reveal what her name was. There are actually a lot of fan theories that her name was June, because in the very first chapter, Margaret Atwood lists some names of women in the Red Center, and all of those names are accounted for except June. So readers interpreted Offred's real name being June. Uh, Margaret Atwood has since written and spoken about this, saying that she didn't intend for that, but she's happy with the interpretation that readers have taken. That is such a cool thing to interact with people. I feel like the only other author that's done that really well is J.K. Rowling. So that is so cool. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is awesome. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so right off the bat, her name itself is June in the show, as opposed to only Offred in the book. Her, her character is a bit different from the show. And Elizabeth and I had a bit of a discussion about what word describes the difference. Yeah. So first I was just like, oh, well, she's meek in the book. And then we really didn't want to use that word because it was something that the Red Center and everyone in charge uses to describe these handmaids. So then I think you threw out careful, maybe? Yeah, that may be the book... Offred is more careful than the June Offred, and that was a bit closer. But it wasn't quite right, because she wasn't necessarily careful. She was still not following the rules and still not doing anything. So then we went the other way and said, well, maybe the show's June is more rebellious. Yeah, and I think that was like closer to the word that we're trying, that this elusive word we're trying <laughs> to find. But then you pointed out that the book Offred is rebellious in her own way. She does really little things. Like, uh, I think it's in the first chapter, she says that she flashes her ankle at the guard, which is rebellious in its own way. It's just not as rebellious as the show, which is when we said, oh, that's because TV is flashier and this tune is flashier. And I think that that's the word that we're sticking with is that the show June is flashier. (laughs) Yeah, like TV flashier, like flashier so that it's better adapted to TV. Yeah, because I didn't want to say that the show June is braver than the book June. No, because I don't because I don't believe that. I mean, this character is in this terrible, terrible, repressive society. And I think just the fact that she isn't like on it like this is super dark but the fact that she like is living in either case is a huge testament to her bravery well it's that and like by her living and still thinking as a normal person her sanity is a testament to her rebelliousness in itself Exactly. It's just different. Like you said, her rebelliousness in the book is not as flashy as it is in the TV show. You know, the comparison of like flashing her ankle versus going headfirst into the Mayday organization and doing a mission for them. Like one of those is better for a book and one of those is better for the TV. Yeah. And it was interesting to try and find that word because words are elusive. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important. Like I said, I didn't want to say bravery or rebelliousness or that's why I was having such a hard time trying to find an adjective for for this. Definitely, definitely. You also had some dialogue examples to point out, right? Yeah, yeah. So and I think that just it kind of really highlights the difference. So for example, whenever June is sleeping with Nick in the book, it's her inner monologue. And in the show, it's the same thing. And she's describing her reasoning for it. In the book, it starts off the same. I wish this story were different. I wish it were more civilized. I wish it showed me in a better light. If not happier, then at least more active, less hesitant, less distracted by trivia. In the show, it starts off the same. She says, I wish this story was different. I wish it showed me in a better light. In a different story, maybe I wouldn't be such a fucking weakling. Yeah. And it that's it's basically the same message. It's just... 
different words. Flashier words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And both are good. They're just different. And I think in that specific example, I think one does work better on TV and one works better in a book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And another, and I think this was around the same time whenever she is talking about Nick in the book, she says, did not do it for him, but for myself entirely. I didn't even think of it as giving myself to him because what did I have to give? I did not feel munificent, but thankful each time he let me in, he didn't have to. But then in the show, whenever she's justifying her sleeping with Nick, she can say, I can say these are acts of rebellion, a fuck you to the patriarchy, but those are excuses. I'm here because it feels good and because I don't want to be alone. Yeah, and I feel like those are very different messages. Yeah, kind of the same. You get down to it, the reason that she's sleeping with Nick is because she wants to. Yeah. Is like the main message, but yeah, there's different wording. It's interesting how they changed it. I definitely, definitely agree with that. I think that a big change we also get to see with the show is that we get more of her inner thoughts and outward expressions, which is something that I didn't think would work better uh, in the show versus the book. I'm really used to getting a lot more inner thoughts in books versus their adaptations. And this is kind of the other way around. And I think it's because they have all of those voiceovers. And Elizabeth Moss is just such a great actress that she can portray this character as being meek and servile while also thinking, fuck you. And you can see that on her face. Oh, yeah. And I think that's really highlighted in the scenes with the commander. You can see her physically put on a different face and like voice to then talk to the commander to kind of manipulate him. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I thought that it kind of also was really important of uh, when she had her wings on. A lot of times they'll show her face and then they'll show her talking to someone else and they'll show their face. And whenever they cut to look directly in her face, we see what she's thinking and she's expressing what she's feeling. But whenever we cut away, we don't get that interaction anymore. And I thought that that was a really cool piece of something in the TV show that we don't get in the book. Yeah. And I think we kind of said that probably one of the main reasons for this big difference in her character was, I think, just the time. Yeah. So I'm not really sure about why. I had this thought and I, I brought it up with you of, I didn't really know if it was different because it's a TV adaptation versus a book. I didn't know if it was because the book came out in the 1980s and the TV show came out in the 2010s. And I actually don't know if this is because the book was made in pre-Trump world and the show was made in post-Trump world. I think that there are all these reasons for why June's character is different. And I'm not quite sure exactly what the reason is. I think it's a mix of everything. I think that, like we said, she's flashier in the TV. I think that women nowadays are more vocal about feminism and rebelling. And it's a different conversation than it was in the 1980s. And so that's why we can have this different conversation in the book versus the TV show. And I do think that this world that we live in, this Trump era, probably puts some of this into play because people are taking this really seriously, which allows the TV show to be a little bit more creative. And it lets them kind of do what they want because people are so into it. And I think that that's really cool. Yeah, I think those reasons that you listed, I think it's a combination of all three. I also think that the past 10, 15 years, we've seen so many dystopian novels and dystopian novel heroes. It's the Katniss era. I disagree with you. I think that there's always been dystopian novels. There's, I mean, 1984 is a common one that people talk about, but I think that it's the fact that it's more mainstream. Yeah, like Catching Fire, Katniss, all of that nonsense. Um, I don't like those books. I'm going to be honest. I don't like those books. I mean, Harry Potter was rebellious in his own right. So I think that that's, I think that it's just so that it's more mainstream and that's really cool. Yeah, no, that's what I meant by it. Not the dystopian novels all of a sudden sprung up in the last 10 years. No, and I, I knew that's what you meant, but I just wanted to be clear. No, clearness is always good. I guess what I was getting at is that in the mainstream, there have been these dystopian novels and these heroines who are very rebellious and very physically strong and fight back physically, emotionally, in every kind of way. But back in 1985... There really wasn't that. Yeah. I mean, you had Leia 
And then I think mm-hmm. there was like Barbarella, but not really. There are a few female icons and the 80s were pretty awesome. But I think there are definitely are more nowadays and that's so cool. Yeah, but that I think is another reason why the show June is a bit flashier than book June. I but... agree. Flashier is such a good adjective. Like I said, I still don't know if that's the exact right word that I'm hunting for, but it's the closest thing I think we were able to come up with. Maybe there's not a word for it. Maybe we need to call it, like, Juneness. Yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Because I like both versions, and I think they're amazing and brave in their own way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that... That was the main difference we noticed in June that we wanted to talk about. If you have a better word for us, please let us know. Yeah, we wanted to move on to some other characters. Who do you want to talk about first? Oh my god, I don't know. I love the extras that they added to this universe. I'll talk about Moira. I really like her. Moira's a bamf. Like, she's awesome. So, like I said, her dialogue is actually the one that I noticed that stays exactly the same when they're in the Red Center. She basically talks about it exactly the same. And she's the same badass that June describes her in the book. She's so cool. She still tries to escape. She does all of these things. And everything up until we see her, Jezebel's is the exact same. She's even got the same weird bunny outfit that June talks about in the book, which I thought was great. But for her, they added this great story of her being depressed and sad and sitting with her situation and just accepting it until June sees her and says, no, this isn't right. You and I are going to make it. That's what's going to happen. And we're going to get out of here. And then she escapes to Canada. And I am, oh my god, I know. And there was this, we're going to go more into detail in another episode, but her storyline and how she follows it is so cool. And I love that they made her a badass. And I'm really excited to see what she's up to in season two. Yeah, like we said, up until the second time June goes to Jezebel's in the show, Moira's storyline and her character is exactly the same from the book. Samira Wiley portrayed Moira exactly how I imagined her. Yeah, and she's so cool. I got introduced to her through Orange is the New Black, as I'm sure a lot of people did, and she's just such a great actress. I'm so happy. I was so happy when I saw that she was in this, because I didn't know, and I would just, oh, she's so great. (laughs) Yeah, no, before it came out, I saw that she was cast as Moira, and I was so excited to see her. I knew she was going to do a great job, and then, of course, she obviously did and exceeded expectations, and she plays Moira exactly exactly how I imagined her. Yeah, she's really cool. Yeah, so then we also wanted to briefly talk about Of Glenn, who is June's shopping partner. She's another handmaid, and we find out in both the book and the show that she's also rebellious, and she's part of the uh, Mayday rebellious group. In the book, we really don't know that much about her. June just goes shopping with her, and they kind of talk a little bit. But in the show, they actually give her a backstory. They reveal that she had a wife, and a son named Oliver, who was five years old, and they tried to escape to Canada. They had visas, but she didn't, so she got caught and was forced to become a handmaid. So there's a lot more characterization and backstory for her in the show, and even though it's not that way in the book, I feel like it fits so well with that character and in this world. It fits so well, and we also learn a lot more about the universe through Offglen. We see what happens when a handmaid disobeys them, And we're going to talk a lot about that. I hate that I'm excited about that, but I'm really excited about that. We get to know some of the bad stuff that happens to Handmaids through her. And I thought that that was such a great universe expansion of answering a lot of the questions that the book didn't answer. Mm -hmm. They have a trial for her and... um... They have a trial where they accuse her by a Bible verse. And that infuriates me. I'm so mad at that. Oh my god, I'm so mad at that. Yeah, so Offlin's great. Another specific character we wanted to point out was Luke. They add in a whole story for him. They add in his escape to Canada. He has a whole episode where he's the narrator and he gets to kind of lead the story. We also get to know that he's looking for June and how stuff works in Canada through his eyes. And I thought that that was such a great 
great addition to this universe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the book, it's only June and her point of view. We don't leave her city, her house, Gilead at all. So it was really amazing in the show that they decided to kind of zoom the camera out and show what was going on in the rest of the world outside of this totalitarian regime in the U.S. Yeah, well, I was really confused. I was watching the first three episodes and they went through so much material that I was like, what are you going to do for the rest of the season? And then they started introducing all of these universes and their expansions. And I was so, so happy. And there's a lot more little things that they add about a lot of different characters. But those are the main three additions that we wanted to point out because I think they were our favorites in addition to June's. Yeah, there are these differences. And normally, like with adaptations, I hate differences. But this one was so very well done. And the expansion of this universe really makes you feel that you're in this Gilead universe. Yeah, and it didn't feel like they were adding anything. When I was watching it, it just, everything, everything they added, added more content and context and just made it more believable. And I am so happy with how well they did. It's very hard to do this. And I am so, so happy with how well they did this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we also wanted to talk kind of about unreliable narrators. Yeah. So this is a main theme that happens in a lot of books is that you have a narrator who's unreliable and you're not quite sure what they're telling the truth or what they're telling to be false. And I really like these books because I like learning more about people and I feel like you learn a lot about people through how they lie and what they're thinking. And the book is all through Alfred's view, through June's view. And it's all of her thoughts, all of her feelings. And we don't get a lot of insight into the other characters because it's just through her eyes. And we think that she's unreliable. Like, for example, we thought that some of this in the book wasn't true because it could have just been her imagination making things up to keep her sane. And so you don't really know. Exactly. Uh, to say that Offred is an unreliable narrator is a bit of an understatement. Yeah, so you don't really know. And because it's all her story and no one backs her up and it's a very interesting perspective. Yeah, with TV, you can't really do that. You can't really have an unreliable narrator because you're literally seeing it on the screen. So that's what it is. Right, exactly. So instead, what they did is that each main character, Serena Joy, Luke, Moira, and Nick, they all get an episode or at least part of an episode to be the narrator, to be this unreliable narrator. And I really liked how they did that because when everyone got their chance, we also got to see their flashbacks to the before time and what happened before Gilead happened and see what life was like before the Sons of Jacob took over. And I thought that that was such a great expansion. Yeah, no, I really liked how they did the flashbacks flashbacks and just like a lot of the times it just the coloring makes it just seem so idealistic oh the coloring don't get me started on the coloring yeah i think we're going to talk about it in a lot more depth in later episodes but i also thought it was really interesting that in the book a lot of offred's thoughts are just like thoughts in her heads and i think one of her coping mechanisms is her imagination so she like imagines these conversations and these situations that could happen but in the show they actually do happen they're not her imagination they actually do so an example was that when moira escapes in the book she escapes by herself but in the show moira and june try to escape together and in the book offred's like imagining what her escape is like and what moira is going to say and like going to the aunt and saying i could stab you right now but i'm not remember this <laughs> like in something very dramatic and another instance is offred in the book is imagining like what some of the wives would say to her if she was in a conversation like oh do you want a cookie dear and oh no don't spoil them pretty much talking like she's a pet essentially yeah, well uh, that's kind of how they view them as objects as pets as property yeah exactly but in the book that conversation is just something that Offred imagines but in the show it actually happens which i thought was really interesting yeah it would be very difficult to show those imagined conversations in the tv show but i'm so glad that they kept them in a certain way and i thought that that was very intelligent and very very well done oh yeah no i totally agree i'm very glad that they kept all of it and once again i think that also kind of adds to the difference between June's character with these additions. Like you said, you can't really portray 
an imagined conversation very well. It's doable, but it's hard. And it's hard to do well. Yeah. And I think because there are these conversations that actually happen, it added to this flashiness of June's character in the show. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, I think that these added conversations, they just add more to this universe and they add more to not only the characters of the wives of people that June is talking to, but they add more depth to June. And and that's I think that that's probably why they kept them the way that they did. Yeah, I think we can just agree that the universe expansion that they did with the show really added specifics for each character and made them a lot more human. Yeah. Absolutely. We also wanted to talk about a lot of the befores, a lot of the flashbacks that happens in the show, because there weren't a lot in the book. I think that the character is a little bit pained by her memories. And there were definitely a few, like we do get to hear some of this, but there were a lot more in the show, not only from June, but from everyone else, because we don't get their befores in the book at all. And so I thought that that was really cool, because each before has like a little clue to what is happening and what will happen. So like, as an example, when she's giving birth to her child, she's the only mother in the hospital. She's the only one giving birth at that time. And that's really important because it shows how the fertility rates went down. And they're in a big city too. And I thought that another cool thing that they added from that specific scene is that when she goes to the hospital, there is a huge crowd of people praying outside, just hoping for a child that's not theirs. And they have no connection to, but they're so worried about this fertility decline that they're already praying for this unknown thing. It's already a community thing. And that, I thought that that was a really cool way to show what is to come. And also, while she's in the hospital, someone tries to steal her baby already to kind of foreshadow that eventually people are going to start stealing babies. And I really, really liked those additions. I thought that that was really good. Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of them, and we'll get into more specific examples in our upcoming episodes. But yeah, the before scenes and the foreshadowing that they did was just, like, once again, very well done in building up this universe. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been going on and on about how much we love this, but there was a difference that you didn't like, right? And more that I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> there, there's a couple. Yeah, there are a couple of differences where there was some criticism about them, and I don't know how I feel about them. All right, well, maybe we can figure it out now. So which one do you want to start with? Um, okay, so let's start with the ages of the Commander and Serena Joy. So in the book, the Commander and Serena Joy are quite a bit older. They're probably in like their 50s and 60s. So the implication that Serena Joy is too old to have a kid now. And so that adds like a very interesting power dynamic. But in the show, the Commander and Serena Joy are a lot younger. I think they look like they're in their 30s or 40s, older than June, but I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel about it. I kind of thought about this. I actually liked that. I think that, well, first of all, it was less creepy, which is nice from a show that's really creepy all the time. And second of all, I think that I was always pissed off in the book whenever they mentioned their ages because I'm like, yeah, duh. They're not going to have kids <laughs> that way. And I think that them being younger and them being the age that they should be bearing children is more realistic to how dire this situation is. So I actually kind of liked it. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Like, it definitely adds, like, I mean, I hate Serena Joy, so. That was one of the differences that I liked, but I didn't like that I liked, because I actually like <laughs> the TV Serena Joy. I have more empathy towards her, and it frustrates me because she's so bad. <laughs> yeah, I like that they have more characterization of Serena Joy in the show, but I still hate her and still have no sympathy for her. I mean, yeah, but that was one of the huge things that I liked about this universe expansion is that it gave every single person a reason to be doing what they're doing. It gave them all some personal reason for why they're doing what they're doing instead of being pure evil and just doing it because it actually gave them a reason which makes them more human and it makes us want to empathize with them. And I thought, uh, I, I love when authors and writers do that, but I also hate it because I don't want to empathize with these characters. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know, I, I thought with the ages in the book, it really highlights the 
power dynamics between all three of them. And it makes more sense to me that way. And in the show with Serena Joy and June being around the same age, it just feels like it's set up as these two women competing against each other, Hmm. which I hate. Yeah, no, I didn't think about that. And I don't know if I get that necessarily from the TV show, but I can see what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I and once again, I understand why the show made these changes, and I think the actors of these characters, Joseph Innes and Yvonne Drahovsky, I think these actors are amazing at portraying the commander and Serena Joy. It's just different, and I don't know if I like one more than the other. Sure, yeah. Yes, another difference that I have mixed feelings about is the show's inclusion of people of color. So in the book, it's, once again, things aren't very clear um, with, like, the state of things, but it is implied and has been confirmed that in the book Gilead universe, people of color were carted off to the colonies. In addition to this being a very misogynistic place to live, it's also super racist, which is like real life. So yay, the TV show isn't as racist? So the show wanted to include people of color. Like they wanted a diverse cast. So they made that a point. They made Luke, one of the main male characters, black. Moira is black. June and Luke have a biracial daughter. Also like a lot of background characters. That scene when they have the big party with the Mexican delegation, if you kind of look out over the crowd, there's just a lot of different races there, which I love that. I love including more people of color in TV shows and on film. But one of the criticisms that the show did get was that they didn't like address race at all. Yeah, I think that there was so many things to address in this universe already that maybe it would have been too difficult to add in the race card as well. And yeah, they do still keep with the storyline though. I mean, I'm pretty sure there's only white men in Gilead. I don't remember seeing any people of color that are male, just the females, which are all of the women are kind of seen as objects anyway. So that kind of works still with the stuff. I like the changes that they made. No, I did too. I was just like, I do see like the criticisms that the show got for how they portrayed race. And I also understand the reasons that they did what they did. Yeah, another thing we wanted to talk about. So the entire time I was watching the show, I was like creeped out for a lot of reasons. And I think that everyone figured that out. But there was like this underlying layer of creepiness that I couldn't quite put my finger on until one of the last episodes where they amputated the guy's hand for having feelings for his handmaid. And it was this amputation scene with all of these surgical elements and everything. But it's an amputation scene for no reason other than to follow this old religious law. And finally, it was like a spark went off and I realized that main reason I was feeling creeped out was because there's this barbarianism, anachronism of this old-timey way of doing things, but it's in this modern-day world where they have surgical instruments and like everything is clean when it needs to be and this is today and they're following these barbaric rules and it just like it so creeps me out that this is that that pairing for some reason it just irks me and like my entire being is just creeped out by all of those elements whenever they're doing something really really old but in this modern day world and it just feels wrong to me yeah no that scene was definitely very very creepy and the book is post 1985 the show is post 2016 17 18 modern times and that's really portrayed very starkly in that scene yeah you get a lot of moments where it doesn't look like 2018 it looks like the 1800s but that specific scene where it was just so in your face i was maybe relieved that i could finally put a phrase to what i was feeling but that pairing of the two that just it's wrong it's it's wrong and it shouldn't happen and it frustrates me yeah which leads me to my next point so i grew up catholic so i kind of know the bible back and forth and I was expecting a reaction from the show that uh, didn't actually happen. (laughs) I was expecting to be really annoyed by all the religious stuff, and I was expecting to be weirded out by it, but, you know, which is what I assume most people felt, but 
my main reaction wasn't that. It was pure and utter annoyance and anger at how they twisted the religious text. Yeah. What makes me infuriated is that this happens in real life. Yeah, absolutely it does. So I think it was a few episodes into the show, they kept mentioning all of these religious verses, and I wanted to read them within their context. So I started marking them in my Bible. And there's a lot of them. And it's like they took the Bible, and they found every single awful verse. And that's the only ones that they used in the show and in these religious doctrines that they're using. And it just like frustrates me to no end because there are so many good verses. And they used all of the terrible ones. One in particular, and this has annoyed me for a while, like years, is whenever people use the Beatitudes for what they're not meant for. And so in the book and in the show, they use this one line from the Beatitudes, which is, blessed are the meek. And I don't know if anyone has read the Beatitudes in full, but it's a 12-line verse. Yeah, it's very long. And so there are a lot of I don't remember exactly where I'd heard this before. I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find a good article about it. But there are a lot of things that takes the Beatitudes and it twists them. And it's frustrating. And so in its full, this is the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in the full context, there's a lot of things in here that the handmaids were doing right. So like, for example, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You got to include the second part if you're going to say the first part. Yeah, the Beatitudes is definitely like the best example of religious groups taking texts from the Bible cutting out what they want, and then presenting that to the world. And it frustrates me to no end because you cannot just pick and choose. You got to take the whole thing or not the whole thing. And there's a lot of different views on that, specifically with the Beatitudes. And like with this show specifically, the thing that pisses me off is like at the very end, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted. And they will, like, it talks about the handmaids. How can you not see the irony in using that one line, blessed are the meek, when the entire verse is about these people who are persecuted? Like, how can you not see the irony in that? And that's why I get so mad at this show, because there's no context in these verses that they use. I could pick out all so many, and we're going to talk about them. But there's a lot of examples of these where they take what they want, they pick and choose, and it's so frustrating coming from somewhere where I actually understand where this is coming from. And I've been taught this my entire life. And like I said, I didn't think this was the reaction that I was going to have, but it's so frustrating to see something important to you be twisted. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, that scene with the Beatitudes in the show where Aunt Lydia is reciting, blessed are the meek, and then June finishes the prayer. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, so that made me really angry, guys. Good Elizabeth rant. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, so we'll probably talk about Bible verses in the next two episodes more, mostly because there are a few that I wanted to point out specifically, but that was the main one that was throughout the entire show that each time it came up, I wanted to throw something at my TV, namely my Bible. Totally feel that. Okay. So we also wanted to talk about the book ending versus the show ending and some of our predictions for season two. So the book ends with Offred getting carted away by the eyes into a black van. Uh, Nick, who is an eye, comes up to her and just says, go with them. Trust me on this. So she goes off to her fate and we kind of don't know what happens. And we don't even know if Nick is an eye. We don't know if the people who took her were eyes. We don't know anything. She's just carted off into the distance. And then there's this epilogue from sometime in the distant future 
where they talk about studying these recordings left by an anonymous handmaid. And that's how the book ends. It's being studied academically. It's really good. I loved that epilogue. But yeah, it's supposed to be like a recording of a lecture, right? Yeah, a recording of a lecture um, of a, like an annual conference studying the Gilead regime. This book, The Handmaid's Tale, came from uh, these cassette recordings from a handmaid. And it's very unclear about what happened to this handmaid uh, who is Offred. Yeah, they mentioned that they try to find her, but because some of the records were lost and it is very distant in the future, they don't know who she was. She remains anonymous and they don't really know. And I, oh, that was such a cool ending. I really liked that. But kind of the same thing happens in the show at the end of season one. June disappears and she's put into a van by these eyes. Nick, again, tells her to just go with them and go with the flow. And we don't really know what she's going. They did change one important thing, though, is that she's pregnant. Yeah, well, in the book, she thinks that she's pregnant. It's just, it's not confirmed. There's like a couple of lines where she says to Nick, like, it should be any day now that I should know. So once again, like, the book is very huge, unreliable narrator and not very clear what happens to her. Uh, with a lot of things. So that'll make it like really interesting for season two. Yeah, so June is put into a van. Luke and Moira are also in Canada, and we assume that they're going to come back for June. Luke has been looking for her, and now that he has Moira's help, I hope that they look at them more often, because I, I really like their story. But pretty much everything is up in the air, just like it is at the end of the book. And so now we kind of get to expand into this whole new world that the book doesn't cover at all, because they've covered basically everything in the book now. Yeah, the only thing that they haven't covered is that epilogue with the recording from the conference. But based on that, we can make some like pretty cool and fun predictions for what's going to happen in season two and beyond. Well, plus there's already the uh, trailer out for season two, so we kind of have a better idea about what's going to happen. <laughs> yes, once a trailer goes out, smart people on the internet can kind of put together a good prediction of what's going to happen. So one difference which we kind of talked about earlier was that how the show addressed race and included people of color. They have been very receptive about the criticism that they got because of that. And so they said that they will be addressing race more in the second season. So that's really interesting. That's going to be really cool. I am really excited about that. Um, from the trailer, we see scenes of what I think are the colonies. I think you thought that too. So we think that we're going to go to the colonies. We think that she's being exiled because of what she did i don't know what's gonna happen now that she's pregnant that's like the biggest question i have is that she's pregnant what are you gonna do like you can't just cart her off are you kidding me yeah but we do know that Offglen, whose real name is emily in the show and janine will be in the colonies yes we did we did get a little glimpse of them which is gonna be really cool because i like those characters a lot i'm very much looking forward to it because it airs yeah. really soon <laughs> yeah well i don't think june she's going to the colonies i think that she's going to be in the resistance somehow. There was like a couple of things in the trailer which made me think that but they've also said in interviews and there was like a one second clip that they're going to be introducing June's mother in the show mainly through flashbacks. Interesting. Um, yeah because we I don't have any information on that. Yeah June's mother she talks about her a little bit in the book but she's only mentioned like once in the show so they said they're going to expand on that character which is really exciting. Yeah that's going to be super cool. I'm very excited for season two. Yeah, another theory or prediction is that in the epilogue of the book, these scholars talk about this second purge that happens during the Gilead regime. And they said that this was around the time that Offred made these recordings. And so a lot of the original founders of Gilead who wrote the rules but then broke them are outed and killed. Oh, interesting. And we kind of saw that a little bit in season one with that amputation scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in the epilogue, it states that they were trying to figure out who this handmaid was, who made these recordings and who her commander was. And they had narrowed it down to a couple of options. And one of those options, whose name is Waterford, they said that he was actually arrested for breaking these rules, like having the magazines and having Scrabble and going to Jezebel's. So they actually arrest him and publicly kill him in a public execution. Interesting. Yeah. So I think that's happening. Well, yeah, we do see um, in the trailer, we saw a little clip of Serena Joy looking very much like June. 
she's sitting in the window, stuff like that. Again, I hate that I like Serena Joy in the TV show, but I really empathize with her. I actually do. I appreciate the added complexities of her character, but I refuse to have any sympathy for her. Fair. That's fair. I mean, yeah, she's a terrible person, but I do have a lot of empathy for her. Mostly because she, like, she's brilliant and she's stuck in this little box. Little, little tiny box. And that just makes me sad. Of her own making. I understand (laughs) that. But still... I don't know. We'll talk about this a lot more in the next two episodes where we really dive into the show, but this was just kind of our not-so-brief overview of the specific differences between the book and the show. So, yeah, we're very excited for the next couple of episodes. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Subscribe to Teen TV on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast hub, where we would love it if you left us a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TTV Podcast. Check out our website, www.tmtv.com, for related links and commentary. We'll also be live tweeting The Handmaid's Tale for all of season two at TTV Podcast, so be sure to watch with us, available on Hulu, YouTube, and Amazon. Join us next time when we discuss the first part of Season 1 of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. If you're not watching The Handmaid's Tale like you should be, still keep us on your subscription list for our episodes later in the year. We have a wide range of tastes and love hearing suggestions. So until next time, drink tea. And happy binging. Happy binging.